Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, The Mysteries of Compassion. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, verses 10 to 14, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Care for the Little Ones. People like to look down on people. Have you noticed that? I mean, years ago, there was a very funny half-hour program. It was called Corner Gas, and it was set in the Canadian province of Saskatchewan. You know, the make-believe town was called Dog River, and everybody knew everybody, and the, and the police didn't have enough to do. And the Corner Gas Station, along with the one restaurant, were the social hub of the town. But whenever anyone mentioned Woolerton, which was the neighboring prairie town, well, the people of Dog River would spit on the ground. They couldn't mention Woolerton without spitting. Woolerton, that was just below their dignity. Of course, it was all said in humor. I mean, how could one small prairie town be that much superior to another? And please, if you're in a small prairie town, don't write any letters explaining that. You know, it was all part of the laughter of that program and the silly things that people will do to appear superior to someone else. Well, in real life, looking down on someone else isn't quite that funny. In Rwanda, the animosity between the Hutus and the Tutsis led to a genocide. Now, of course, it isn't always that deadly, but in schoolyards across the world, children have names for children who either don't fit in or who don't belong. It can be cruel and it can greatly damage a child and some even for life. And so we should see that looking down on people leads to everything from bullying to genocide. It's a very, very serious problem. Jesus had something to say about that. Matthew 18.10 begins with the words, See that you do not despise one of the little ones. In the context of that saying is that Jesus has been speaking to his disciples about greatness in the kingdom of heaven. The disciples had wanted to know who was the greatest in the kingdom, and in response, Jesus put a child in their midst. He told them that unless they become like children, people who have no status, well, they won't be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. His kingdom would not be built on a show of who was the greatest, but rather his kingdom would demand humility of everyone. As Paul would later say, Philippians 2 verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And it is this, this preferring of one another. It is in seeing ourselves as only those who are surprised that we've been given grace at all, that we actually come to this matter of humility. And in Matthew chapter 18, verses 10 to 14, Jesus takes the principle of the humility that he demands of his followers, and then he applies that to how we treat others who are also his followers. So we start with verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now then, let's remember who Jesus was referring to when he speaks of the little ones. You know, in the previous section, he had taken a child and set that child in the midst of them. And so we might read this to say, do not despise children. And by the way, I'm all for that. Find delight in children. But that's not what Jesus means here. Back in verse 6, Jesus had said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better to have a millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the ocean. You know, in our day, we might say, you'd be better off if the mafia made you a set of concrete shoes and threw you into the ocean. You'd be better off in the hands of the mafia than to stand before God, having caused one of his little ones to sin. Now then, as we saw yesterday, the little ones 
are those who believe in Jesus but have little status. They are what others might think of as people of no account. How easily we begin to evaluate who is the greatest rather than to recognize who is loved by God. Don't you dare, says Jesus, despise someone who isn't that important in your eyes. And then Jesus says, did you know that their angels see my father's face? Now, immediately we have to ask the question, what is the relationship of angels to the little ones? Well, let's agree that the little ones, as we've said, are people among the people of God who are of seemingly little account. They don't lead, they don't preach, they aren't honored at church banquets. Nobody seems to notice their contribution, and they might be those people who have gone to your local church, but no one has noticed them. We call them wallflowers. I mean, wallflowers are just there in the background. No one really sees them, kind of like elevator music. They're part of the crowd. They don't stand out. If you associate with them, it will be of no social advantage to you. They won't help you get ahead. Jesus says, see that you don't despise them. Don't speak badly about them. Don't belittle them. Don't treat them with contempt. Don't even speak dismissively of them. You know, I remember some time ago, someone saying of a brother, well, you know, if he leaves, we can replace him without any difficulty. I mean, how easily those words come out of our mouths. Sometimes we don't have to say something. Sometimes it's just the dismissive way in which we treat someone else. And Jesus is warning us, you watch out, whether in word or in attitude. Well, why? What happens if we look down on the little ones? Well, according to Jesus, these little ones have angels who stand in the presence of God in heaven. Now, forgive me, we're going to take a little detour here before we get back on track. There are people who see this passage as a justification for believing that everyone has a guardian angel who's watching over them. You know, the idea is that when we're born, God assigns one of his angels to constantly monitor us, protecting us from trouble. Now, you and I have heard humor related to that. You know, for instance, if you, if you insist on driving your car too fast on a freeway, then know this, your guardian angel gets out at 140 kilometers an hour. That is, even he can't protect you if you drive that fast. Well, it's funny, but is it true? Is there really a guardian angel protecting each one of us? And when Jesus says their angels, as if their personal angels are standing before the Father, what does he mean? Now, here's a little rule of Bible study. And I think we should all remind ourselves of this rule frequently. Don't ever make the Bible say more than it does. Jesus never said that the little ones have a guardian angel assigned uniquely to them. All he says here is that these little ones have angels who see the face of God. He didn't say the little ones, each of them, either have one or many angels personally assigned to their unique case. You know, I heard one Bible teacher say it very well. We don't know if the angels play man-to-man defense or they're on zone defense. So let's take a step back and see what the Bible actually teaches about God's angels. First of all, how many angels are there? We're never actually told, but Hebrews 12, 22 speaks of innumerable angels, a number that seems larger than we can count. Revelation 5.11 says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands. And here we might ask, I mean, what's a myriad? Again, that word seems to indicate either a number that can't be counted or, at the very least, an extremely large number. So myriads upon myriads, well, you get the idea. If the number of human beings is great on earth, I would assume that the number of angels is vast. 
God has innumerable angels at his disposal at any time. Well, what do the angels actually do? Well, let's start by admitting that we don't know everything that they do. I mean, God might have assignments for angels that are not recorded in the Bible, and I assume that's true. You might remember Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, and the things revealed belong to us. See, there are some things that, in his infinite wisdom, God has chosen not to reveal to us. So all of the activities of the angels are unknown to us. However, we do know some of the things that angels do. You know, a very instructive passage is found in in Genesis 28, verse 12. It says, And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, that's, of course, the, the story of Jacob's ladder. But most likely, it's not a ladder like we might think of a ladder leaning up against a wall. Rather, it's actually a massive stairway that runs from the dwelling place of God down onto the earth. The angels that are ascending would probably be those that have completed an assignment that God has given them on earth, and they're now on their way back to heaven. And those who are descending, well, they've just received their assignment from God, and they're going to accomplish what God has given them to do right here on earth. Now then, a very, very, very large group of angels constantly coming from God and going back to God. That's what's happening. See, I think, therefore, that Jesus is communicating that you be very careful, lest your attitude does harm to one of the little ones. God who sees all things and God who looks to defend the cause of his little ones may dispatch several of his powerful angels to defend that little one, even if it is to defend that little one from you. And you may find that you belittle. You may also find that God is sending his powerful warriors to defend. You might want to think about that. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. I wanted to share with you how blessed and encouraged we are that God is using this ministry to impact so many lives across this country. Recently, we received these words of encouragement. Thank you for the great role you play in the lives of Canadians and around the world. Shauna wrote, your work has enriched the lives of countless people. And finally, may God continue to grow his army and kingdom through your work. We're so grateful. Your efforts, your support of Bible teaching makes this ministry possible nationally and globally. So make sure to check out all the ways Back to the Bible Canada can support you in your spiritual journey. So many of our Bible resources are available to you for free. To learn more or to support this Bible teaching ministry with a financial gift, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. What are angels doing? Well, we do know that in Exodus 14, as, as Israel is leaving Egypt and the Egyptians decide to pursue them, well, they come upon the Red Sea. And in verses 19 to 20 of that chapter, it says, the angel of God, the one that was leading Israel to the Red Sea, now went behind the people of Israel and prevented the Egyptians from coming in contact with Israel. That is, one angel, that was all, was able to hold the entire Egyptian army at bay until God's people had safely crossed the Red Sea. We know also from 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35, 
During the days of Hezekiah, an angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the Assyrian army, would have destroyed Jerusalem. The Assyrian army, then the most powerful army on earth, was absolutely devastated. Yeah, I could give numerous examples, but one thing that angels do is that they are sent by God to protect God's people. You don't want to mess with God's angels. But angels are also deeply interested in the spiritual welfare of God's people. Luke 15, verse 10 records Jesus as saying, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Or Luke 16, verse 22, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Okay, angels guard God's people. They're greatly interested in our spiritual well-being. They carry out those assignments that God gives them. That then accounts for why Jesus tells us not to look down on the little ones. God has sent an angel to watch and defend them, an angel that's greatly interested in their spiritual well-being, one who is able to defend this child of God. If you speak contemptuously against the little ones, you should be aware how God is dispatching his angels to care for them. But that brings me back to the question of guardian angels. You know, some people, because they've bought into the idea of having their own unique guardian angel, that each one of us have this angel assigned to us for a lifetime, well, some of those people have begun to imagine that they now can talk to their guardian angel. You know, they can get to know that angel. Some that I've met have even gotten a name for their angel. Some imagine they can communicate with their angel and all of this without one shred of evidence for that belief structure. I see this as no, as no different than talking to your make-believe friend. It's time, as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 13, to put childish ways aside. But let's get back on track. Jesus says the angels of the little ones see the face of God. That is, God will defend the, the least of these. And so having taught that reality, Jesus tells a parable, verses 12 to 14. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, Does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Let's start with verse 14. Notice there again, Jesus uses the term little ones. Clearly he means by the little ones, the person now who is in danger of losing their faith. Look back at Matthew 18, verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. And then what follows is a threat. If you, through your actions or your attitude of contempt, cause one of these little ones perhaps to begin to fall away, God's going to take action. He's going to protect that one. It would be better to be drowned with a millstone around your neck. Now, here in Matthew 18, 14, we have a a strong word in the opposite direction. The father is determined not to lose any of these little ones. Well, then, is it possible for one of these little ones to be lost or not? Is it possible that the father wants to keep them, but that we, through our thoughtlessness, or even by our own hostile attitudes, might lose one of those that the Father desperately doesn't want to lose? Do you think that you, by your bad attitude, can destroy the work of the Father? Well, we've all heard the stories, haven't we? Someone's been treated harshly, never comes back to church again, seemingly abandons their faith. 
Sometimes it's over a major issue, and sometimes, you know, it seems minor to us. We shrug our shoulders or shake our heads. You know, I once had a conversation with a man that went like this. He said, my child died. We had the funeral at church. During the sermon, the pastor said, I guess God needed your daughter in heaven more than he needed her on earth. He said, I've never gone back to church again. Now, for starters, you know, the idea of a needy God or that idea is outrageous. Acts 17 verse 25 says that God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. God has no needs. God is altogether complete. Nothing in God is a void that needs filling. We are incomplete. God's not. It's a God-dishonoring thing to say that God needed this baby more than the parents did. But the man who told me of his daughter's funeral didn't know theology. All he heard is that God took his child, and because he wanted her, he, he didn't want me to have her, he said. Now, that man could have said, that's that pastor's opinion, and I, I, I don't want to have anything to do with him. That's fine. But he didn't say that. He assumed the pastor was speaking for God. And when I met that man, he was angry with God for wanting his child more than he did. Well, now, here's the question. Was that man one of the little ones that Jesus was speaking about? And, of course, I don't, I don't mean him personally, but rather I, I mean many people like him who have either felt wounded or misunderstood or have have been wounded by an unkind word or unkind treatment. I mean, you know, there are many such attitudes are those whom Jesus means by the little ones. Listen to Matthew 24, 24. Jesus says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So Jesus is saying that in the end times, false prophets are going to lead many astray, and they would have even led the elect astray if such a thing would have been possible. Well, clearly, that leads us, I think, to a conclusion. The conclusion must be that the elect can't be led astray. Or listen to Jesus' words in John 6, 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. I'll lose nothing. Or John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And it is in this regard that Jesus tells the parable. He begins with the words, what do you think? He wants the disciples to think deeply about what he's been saying. Reflect on it, he says. Don't pass by my words quickly without responding and telling me what these words mean to you and what they mean objectively. And so Jesus tells the story of a shepherd who's got a hundred sheep, but then one of them goes astray. So let's start with a man who has the sheep. The sheep are already his. Now then, one of those that belong to him go astray. Does the man say, well, it's a 1% loss. That's not bad. The wolves only got one. That's actually pretty fantastic. But in this parable, that's not the image. In this parable, the man leaves the 99 in the mountains, goes after the sheep. And we shouldn't ask, well, who's watching the 99? I mean, that's not the point. You can't make a parable say everything, especially about those things it was never intended to say. I mean, the point is that the man who owns the sheep will go and search for one. Now, in the parable, Jesus uses the words, if he finds it, he rejoices. That's because a shepherd might not know if his search will be a success or not. But if it should be a success, he's going to be extremely happy. He's going to rejoice because of his successful rescue operation. But that's just one of the differences between that shepherd and the God of heaven. 
The parable is not supposed to tell us that God might not be able to find the lost or the straying sheep. That parable tells us that God is not willing that even one of the little ones will perish. God is going to protect his little ones. They will be securely his. Furthermore, the parable tells us that God is intimately interested in each of his sheep. The wallflower, the person who is a little one, the person of no account, is only thought of that way by us. God the Father doesn't think that way. His full attention is on the little one. That person is not a wallflower, not to him. And if that's you, if you think you're a person of no account, your Heavenly Father has His eyes fully on you. And whenever the need arises, He will dispatch His angels to protect you in the day of trouble. But more, your Heavenly Father will never let you go. He is determined that you should not perish. You need to take it to heart. But let's remember that when telling the parable, Jesus began with the words, what do you think? Now that I've told you the parable, what do you think? What have you learned? You know, for the disciples who watched the crowds sometimes press into Jesus. Sometimes they would see how weary Jesus would be. And then sometimes the disciples just, well, they wanted the people to go away. This parable gave them something different to think about. The Father has a great love. He has a commitment to the least of these. Whereas the disciples saw crowds, Jesus saw people. Whereas the disciples were quick to criticize, Jesus saw lost sheep. What do you think, he asks. Indeed, the question is asked to us as well. What do you think? How important do you think are the least of these? How important are the ones that we never notice? John, I think it's the reality, and we've both been pastors of churches, that sometimes we value people more than others just because of the things that they do, and yet I'm not sure that's how God would measure things. <laughs> you know, it's an interesting question because, you know, you're almost of the opinion that, listen, if you don't value the people that are, that are contributing so much and sacrificing so much and so effective in what they do, you know, failure to value them sidelines them. You end up losing them. You, you know, man, you have all these discussions inside yourself. And, and yet at the same time, you read a passage like the one we've just read, and we hear Jesus saying, you know, for the least of these, your heavenly Father never gives up on them, and, and we need to take that to heart. So if this is about, you know, the compassion of the kingdom, the mystery of compassion, well, it's got to be that there is care and love and compassion for the least of these. I don't know how that works, but it's got to. Thanks so much, John. And remember, join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Mysteries of Compassion, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. June 2020, Back to the Bible Canada will be partnering with Back to the Bible India to conduct its third annual Bible teaching conference, hosting hundreds of Indian pastors across India, beginning in Delhi, then moving to Hyderabad and Chennai. Under the leadership of Dr. John Newfeld, pastors will learn the discipline of effectively teaching the Bible and sharing the gospel. This year, you can sponsor the attendance of an Indian pastor who may otherwise not have the resources to attend for only $55. It includes the cost of the conference, resources, travel, accommodations, and food. What a great investment in the church. Join us in equipping pastors in India. 
Call with your gift to support international initiatives or to send one or two or more pastors to the India Bible Teaching Conference this June. Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit sendapastor.ca or backtothebible.ca.